0: Because hey, I want to live in such a way that, that I enjoy life better and I have a better life. And we do that because we live God's way because we love God and we we fear Him. That's that's what He's saying in verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge me, the Lord says. That's what matters. Whether life works best, whether life goes well or not, what matters is that we learn to trust him. We learn to do what he says. No guarantee of a life free from suffering, not until Christ returns to put suffering away forever, but but let's let's trust him because of who he is. Verse 5, then, lean not on your own understanding. Let's let's focus in on, on some of the the wisdom of this, not, not just for the, the blessing of the, the promises, but let's understand the instruction here. Lean not in your own understanding. This is a call to be entirely committed to the word of the Lord, exclusively committed to the word of God. And note that you can't lean partly on God's word and partly on human wisdom. That'd be like leaning on one broken crutch and one, one good crutch. You you can't lean on, you have to choose what you're going to lean on. You can't lean partly on God's word and partly on human wisdom. Like, you've got to choose. Lean not on your own understanding. You either rely on your own thimble full of of knowledge, often governed by irrational urges that you can't even control, or you rely on the vast oceans of God's wisdom in his word, the Bible. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him. Acknowledge is a wee bit weak. Um, literally it's no not just acknowledge it's know the lord in all your ways so you got to make sure that you're relating to the lord your god and everything that in all your life you're constantly talking to him you're I, I mean i this is a word for me right i'm preaching but i need to hear this that we're to be always constantly talking to God, that, that you're always seeking him, that you're always living in the light of his presence. In all your ways, know God. Desire his presence. It's a bit like when you're married. Um, I don't imagine many people are married here, but it, it's a good idea to start talking and sharing about all sorts of everyday stuff, like what you're thinking and what you're going to do and Why? It's a good idea to know and to bear in mind what your spouse might have to say about X, Y and Z. You might not charge ahead with whatever it is you were going to do uh, and say until you run it past your spouse. Doesn't always happen, of course. Sometimes you know, you, you'll see a husband and wife sitting there having coffee together. you ever see this? See this older couple. They're sitting having coffee and they have absolutely nothing to say to each other. And maybe that's because for years they've been like two ships passing in the night and they don't talk very much and then they get used to that and then one day they've really nothing more to say to each other. As Christians, you and I, through faith in Jesus, have the most important relationship of all with the Lord. So in all your ways, know him, talk to him, Listen to him, think about him, worship him, love him, desire him, know his presence. And know that there's no separation here between your Christian life and the rest of your life. Okay, if you're a Christian, there is no rest of your life. There's only your Christian life. It cannot be divided uh, into stuff that matters for God and then stuff that doesn't. No, in all your ways, know the Lord. Know him, in all things live for his honor and his glory, and he will make your path straight. I wonder if you could see your life from a bird's eye view, if you could get up really high and, and see your life, what would it look like? Um, a friend of mine who's a, a cyclist, was showing me an app on his phone recently. He was able to show me, you know, his whole route was mapped out. He could he was able to show me. Uh, It was all recorded where he had cycled. What if your Christian life could be mapped out like that? How would it look? Would it be a straight path that you've been walking? Or would it be really crooked? In Malhide, I'm in a discipleship group with uh, three other lads, and um, we started the group in the first three or four weeks in September by trying to plot our Christian lives on on like a graph. We try to plot our our Christian lives, all the formative moments, all the times when God really grew our faith, Um, other times when we wandered away, times of immaturity uh, in regard to how we lived, other times uh, when we really grew in wisdom in terms of how to live, all the spiritual highs and lows. We try to map it all out on literally on a chart and then having mapped it all out, then we, we, we each had to take an hour to talk it through. Good exercise. I'd really like to be able to say that I was able to plot a straight line from my Christian life. But I can't say that. Because to my shame, I've not endeavored to know God in all my ways. In some ways I have, and at times in many ways I have, but not in all my ways. It's a good reason for why we look forward though in the christian life because there is a day coming there is a day coming when we will live in the knowledge of god in absolutely all of our ways forever and ever and ever i look forward to that don't know what you look forward to most look forward to that when we will know the Lord in all our ways, fully, completely, forever. In the meantime, verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. In the words of one commentator, don't be a know-it-all individualist who does it his own way. Be not wise in your own eyes. It's so countercultural, isn't it? The whole world says to you that you just got to do what's right for you. Just do what's right for you. We hear that, right? And the assumption is that if you do what's right for you, your paths will be straight. You'll, you'll live a, you know, your life will be lived well. You, you, if you just do what's right in your own eyes. I spoke to a parent in church um, last year. And this mother said to me, you know, I'm so glad my boys are involved in sport. It keeps them out of trouble, you know. It's good for them. And that's the main thing, isn't it? She said that they managed to grow up staying out of trouble. And I thought to myself, no? I didn't react just like that, but... No, that's really not the main thing. I mean, it is, sounds wise, it's good to stay out of trouble and sport, yes, can be very, very positive. I love sport, it's positive for a lot of reasons, but you know, what's really sad is that those boys are never brought to worship God with the people of God on the Lord's Day. So why on earth would their paths be straight? Why do their parents assume that their lives will be lived well and straightforward because they're into sport? The legend that is George Best comes to mind. Be not wise in your own eyes. The goal of this life, what's the goal of your life? The goal of this life is not to, you know, as many people think, is just to retire and play golf. The goal of this life is not to to stay safe and avoid risks. The goal of this life is not to stay out of trouble and play lots of sport and uh, get a well-paid job. Those are good things, but it's not the goal of life. No, the goal of life is to live for the honor and the glory of God in absolutely all things. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, verse 7. That's wisdom. That'll make your path straight. But you realize, don't you, that that'll mean turning your backs on uh, the new religion of our age? If you're going to fear the Lord and turn away from evil, I mean, you're on a collision course with the direction of travel from the world. (laughs) Whoever you want to be, or you can be whoever you want to be according to this new confession of faith. As long as you throw off any ideas that what you are is a given thing, you got to throw that idea off. As long as you believe that you are whatever you choose yourself to be, whatever gender you like even, however you want to perceive yourself. You, 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 as long as you, you just got to reject everything binary as oppressive and evil so that you make up whatever identities you want for yourself. Even create as many genders as you want. I've lost count of how many there are apparently now. It's like choosing from a menu in a Chinese takeaway. You decide for yourself whatever you want to think you are. That will be the way to life and liberty according to this modern confession of faith. We will destroy every notion of being created by a creator, and we will fashion ourselves, and we will call ourselves whatever we feel like, and everyone will have to buy the knee and accept that we are whatever we feel ourselves to be. It'll be a new kind of uh, self, you know, a utopia of self-actualization, and we will worship the God of self, and nothing will be allowed any authority over how we feel and our own thoughts. That's the modern day creed. Meanwhile, we have the Apostles' Creed as Christians, that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There's a clash. Christianity stands in direct opposition to the new religion of our society. And therefore we need to hear it really loudly and clearly. Be not wise in your own eyes. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, verse 7. And look at the promises with this. It'll be healing to your flesh, verse 8, and refreshment to your bones. It's blessing to your body, outside and in. It's a promise of physical and mental well-being. And the promise to honor the Lord with your wealth, in verse 9, if you live generously, give to the needy. Use your wealth not for your own selfish gain and comfort, but for the blessing of others who are less fortunate. Well, we learn here that God loves to bless that. And again, these promises, we wrestle with these promises. But remember, they're generally true. They're not absolutely true until Christ returns. But God loves to bless a cheerful giver. says, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The point here is not that God says, Oh, you really deserve to be spoiled. Here, have some riches for yourself. You deserve it. Put your feet up. Indulge yourself. Enjoy a bit of luxury in life because you've earned it. That's not the point. God is not promising luxury here. And He certainly doesn't give riches with a view to people being able to indulge themselves. The point is simply that God promises to give you everything you need so that you can keep on helping other people who are in need. And it's kind of an echo of the first line of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall shall not be lacking in what I need in order to bless others. And the Apostle Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you, he says, so that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may be able to abound in every good work. So if you're generous in life, you can generally expect God to bless you in such a way that you'll be able to keep on being generous. Not an absolute guarantee, but it's it's generally true. And there's a principle here, and it's not just about money. I look at you guys, I look at the CE, And I see your generosity in sending teams to the likes of Malahide and other places in order to serve us. And I believe God rewards that kind of generosity. He does. And he rewards it so that you can keep on serving wherever God may lead. And of course, it won't always be Malahide. God will close some doors. He'll open some other doors. Who knows where God will lead you to serve as the years go by. But if you want to keep on serving wherever surely God will keep on supplying. Your ability to send teams is supplied by God because that's what God loves to do. He loves to bless cheerful givers. We come finally to the last two verses in verses 11 to 12, and they remind us that the God who gives to the one who honors him is also the God who disciplines so that we learn to honor him. The Lord disciplines those he loves. You know, without, without any discipline, how would we ever learn to keep his teaching? In fact, without discipline, how would we learn anything? Do you ever learn anything without discipline? I mean, if, if your school and your parents said to you, hey, you don't have to open your books ever, it's fine. In fact, you don't even have to come to class ever No worries. In fact, you don't have to do any homework ever, or exams, or coursework. Eh, No need to worry about all that. For a brief moment, that may sound like heaven, but it would actually be a disaster. Teachers know that. It'd be a disaster. And it's the same in the Christian life. We need God to train us. Discipline is not just about consequences for wrongdoing although it does include that. Discipline is about training, it's about coaching. If you're an Olympic swimmer, it's about getting up and getting into the pool at 6 a.m. every morning so that you do your hour swim before everybody else is even out of bed. And if you're a Christian, it's about getting up every time you get knocked down in the Christian life by the trials of life. We can learn and be shaped for good, not when all is easy, but when life is hard. And Job had to learn that that's when we learn to lean on God. Or at least that's when we can learn more than ever to lean on God. So yes, God, God sends his children hardship, but only, why does he do it? It's only because he loves us. So do not despise the Lord's discipline, verse 11, he loves you. Nearly finished here. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says, imagine an artist working on his masterpiece anyone into art imagine an artist working on his masterpiece and the amount of effort he puts into it he's rubbing it out he's starting again for the 10th time and he works so hard on the drawing because he loves it right and that's why he works so hard on it and he wouldn't care if it was just a silly little picture drawn to amuse a child he wouldn't care But he loves this drawing so much because he wants it to be perfect. And so he works on it, and he works on it, and he works on it. Now, C.S. Lewis says, imagine if the work of art had feelings of its own. This poor drawing, it's been rubbed out so many times. It's been worked on again and again and again and again. If that work of art had feelings, it would cry out in pain. But if only the work of art could see and know and understand that the artist is working on it so much because he treasures it so much that's how god is with us he treasures us as his children so much that he works on us and it's painful and it's hard life is hard sometimes we complain about our sufferings but actually they're only there because he loves us and we don't understand that of course we don't understand that amid all the pain and discomfort but that's exactly why we've got to come back to the central message of this chapter trust in the Lord trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding for the Lord reproves him whom he loves verse 12 as a father does a good father disciplines his child you know that I mean, if your parents did not love you, they wouldn't care what you got up to, would they? They wouldn't care what time you came in if they did not love you. So let's think about how the Lord does discipline us. Let's think about our troubles even in that light, that God is working on us because He loves us, and He wants us to learn to trust Him, even when we don't understand the wicked eventually become the permanent inheritor of troubles, whereas the righteous have trouble only for a short time, only in this life. In this short life we suffer. We'll go through sad and painful things, but they will pass, and they will pass because every one of these promises in Proverbs 3 for life and health.